Alex Mosen, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle to fight back and win against big tech monopolies. All right. Before we jump into tech, we're going we're gonna to touch on, of course, we're going to touch on Elon and Twitter. We're going to touch on a couple of interesting things going on with Amazon. Some crazy stuff happening in China. No surprise there. But let's let's do a little, let's do, let's do, just do a little economy 101. Um, last episode we did, we, you know, we announced that we are officially in a recession. Uh, that was, maybe it was two episodes ago, July 1st, right? Yeah, I think two episodes ago. July 1st, officially in a recession. Now we've got some more news about the state of the economy. Um, you've got record high inflation reading that came out recently. Um, 9.1% inflation. The last reading was 8.6. So it's still going up despite the Fed raising the short-term interest rates and doing quantitative tightening. No one's really been talking about that. Everyone's been talking about how they're raising interest rates. So just dig a little bit deeper into this quickly. The one interesting thing with inflation is that, you know, I was just in Europe for a little bit. It, it, basically, the US EU exchange rate is one to one. It's unheard of, right? Uh, that used to never be the case. Um, it would always cost you, you know, like $1.20, $1.10, $1.30 per uh, euro. Back in February 2021, it took $1, $1.20 to buy one euro. Since then, the dollar has surged against the euro and is now one to one. Last time this parity occurred was in 2002. And why that's relevant is because a strengthened dollar actually brings down inflation. Because we run a trade deficit, we're buying so many goods from other countries, right? So now you can buy, you can buy parts for your cars, for your airplanes, for your, you know, whatever it is, right? You can buy those products cheaper. Effectively, they're effectively cheaper um, to buy those products and then import them into the U.S., which helps to counteract inflation, right? Um, so if, if the dollar hadn't been getting stronger, inflation would have actually been even higher is, is what some of these articles are pointing out. So let's keep that in mind. Okay. What else to keep in mind? The Fed has now officially started quantitative tightening. If we remember maybe six or nine months ago, I think end of 2021, they said, hey, we are going to slowly decrease QE. Uh, which <clears throat> is where the Fed is creating money. But then they're going to go to QT, quantitative tightening, and uh, basically in July. So now they slowly tapered down their QE month over month, month over month. And now, so they're printing money, printing money, but printing less money into the economy every month. And now they've flip-flopped it where they're now taking money out of the, out of the money supply. Which, what does that do? It only makes it harder to get capital. It only makes it um, harder to to lend, and um, it makes it uh, it it promotes uh, investors to be less risky rather than more risky, and so on and so forth. Right. So you can see here the Fed's balance sheet since September of 2021. If you if you rewind multiple years. This thing would be many trillions of dollars uh, lower, but just just zeroing in here on the past, um, you know, 
about 20 months or so. You can see it went from about $8.4 billion in uh, September 2021 and then steadily increased up to a peak of a, just shy of $9 trillion. This was in March, April of 2022. And then they've started to now stop printing money um, and are now actually taking money out. So that's one tool the Fed's trying to use to uh, clamp down on inflation. Let's look at the housing market. So a few episodes ago, we talked about how active listings are increasing, right? There's actually a huge surge of more supply and inventory going into the real estate market. People are trying to sell their homes. Why? Because you and I aren't the only people out there seeing that, hey, you know what? Yeah, things are about to get a lot worse. So if I have a house and I've been holding on to the house and I want to sell the house in the next few years, now is the time to sell that house. Well, we aren't the only ones, unfortunately, that have figured this one out. And you are seeing these active listings percent change increasing dramatically month over month here. You got more inventory coming on, more supply. Then you have um, sales also decreasing. So pending sales in June fell by 16% year over year. So June 2022 compared to June 2021. And there's been a downward trend for now, you know, multiple quarters. But that downward trend has been increasing steadily quarter over quarter. You're also seeing number of price reductions hitting an all-time high. This is looking at a five-year time horizon. That's a 100% change from a year ago uh, in June 2022 compared to June 2021. Literally doubled year over year. Um, there was a 50% increase from May to June in price reduction. So from one month, May 2022 compared to May, June 2022, 50% increase. From June 2022 compared to June 2021, 100% increase. And then obviously, to no surprise, <clears throat> mortgage rates, 30-year fixed mortgage rates are going through the roof, going to go higher. Um, we'll see if the Fed continues to raise. I've got an interesting perspective on that in a second. Um, but our approaching 30-year fixed mortgage rate of 6%, which would kind of bring us back to a 13, 14-year high going back to really the 08 and 09. A lot of things going a little crazy, except for basically like five five or six metros. Um, the, and of course, the one where I live, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, West Palm Beach metro, um, is actually seeing less inventory uh, than a year ago as compared to a year ago. Um, uh, so that's, that's also pretty interesting. But will the Fed raise in interest rates again, again in the next couple of weeks here at their next FOMC meeting? Um, interesting perspective from a former IMF director, where is that? Is an economics professor at Harvard University. Said he is angry about what is happening with the economy. I don't think this had to happen. He said, we stepped on the gas pedal for too long and it was too much stimulus too late. I'm sympathetic to all the goals, but the stimulus, they kept on going too long and they didn't calibrate it. What he's basically saying is they kept on doing QE for too long. They kept on printing money, keeping interest rates at literally nothing. 
for way too long when they were disregarding, and this is the Fed and the federal government, when they were disregarding uh, that inflation, you know, they were saying inflation was transitory, which it clearly was not. The show's been calling it. So they clearly missed it. We didn't miss it on the show, though. We've been calling that inflation has not been transitory for over a year now. So this guy, Ken Rogoff, thinks that the Fed will blink and slow down aggressive rate heights. You know, the Fed has signaled they would do another 75 basis point um, rate hike at the end of July, which is honestly unprecedented to even see a 75 basis point rate hike to begin with, which is what they just did a few weeks ago and happened for like 40 years. Um, and, and again, you know, this Fed is just so there's no tact. Uh, and when you run the Federal Reserve, you kind of need tact. So, you know, if you'd raise things by 25, 50 basis points in 2021, what's that going to do? Is that really going to is that really going to, you know, cause a recession, cause all these bad things from happening? No. But does it help you pump the brakes a little bit? Um, also, just change consumer sentiment that things are going to be rock bottom interest rates, QE forever. But no, what they've done now is they're going so hard in the other direction because I think they see this 9.1% inflation reading, which just came out. Don't think it's true. I think we're actually like probably 20, 30% uh, true inflation. You know, they take out a bunch of metrics, they don't count certain things when it doesn't fit their story. We've got tailwinds that help to tamper inflation with the strength of the dollar. Just a lot of things happening where 9.1% increase in inflation is not accurate. It's way underreported. The Fed knows this, which is why I think they're being so aggressive. But the Fed is underestimating how long it takes for these rate increases to actually make their way into the inflation readings which is also why they know that, which is also why I think inflation is so much higher than is being reported because, you know, you don't really see the true impact of an interest rate increase by the Fed uh, for years, right? Like when, um, when companies have to go and refinance their debt, which happens years at a clip, we haven't even seen that. We've seen now all these raises, literally uh, interest rate raises in like a six month period of time, unheard of. It's just so aggressive. And this guy, Ken, I honestly hope this guy is right. I hope he's right. He says, I, I think personally, they should take it easy and let inflation stay high a few years and go slow rather than spark a recession. There is no easy way out. Here's the thing, though. If you raise interest rates another 75 basis points in a few weeks, in a couple of weeks, is it really gonna? Is it really gonna make a difference on whether inflation comes back at nine point one or ten percent or eight percent next quarter? No, it actually won't. This stuff takes time. You've already you've scared the bejesus out of the consumers. You can see it in the housing readings. Out of companies, um, you can see it in the layoffs that are happening. In um, out of out of investors, you can see it in the uh, tech valuations, which we reported on, and in public markets and private markets. Or you can see it all over the place. Fed, hey, you know what? People get it. Times have changed, <laughs> right? Like we get it. Fed, um, another seventy-five basis points isn't really gonna seventy-five basis points is only going to exacerbate how deep of a recession or possibly worse we have in the future. 
because what it's going to do to interest rates, like when you're a company and you now need to go out and refinance, um, or if you're a consumer looking to buy a house, or or any, if you're if you're a uh, a real estate developer looking to finance your project, right? Like all these people that need to get debt. What we haven't yet seen is, hey, I'm a, you know, I'm a private equity, I'm a private equity owned business, and we bought this company when interest rates were at zero and QE was everywhere and money was easily accessible. Now there's QT. Now I've got, um, you know, what's projected to be uh, over two percent short term, you know, Fed fund interest rate in just six months time. What that will do is it will break deals, like entire deals, you know, entire. Uh, your your financial model, your pro forma for a company, and and how you finance that company with a lot of debt, it it breaks the model. So when you break the model, you want to know what happens? Well, you lay off a bunch of people, and then if you can't lay off enough people, or if you can't get things back, you know, to uh, to the to black, well, you go bankrupt. And if the Fed keeps doing this. There's another 75 basis point increase. What you're going to see in a couple of years from now, you know, in a year, two years, what you're going to start seeing, and this is what's really going to freak people out. But this stuff, you know, there's a lag, there's a delay. What you're going to start seeing are large, you're going to see mid-market, large billion-dollar companies not be able to refinance their debt, right? Or, or, the, or the interest rate, which they could refinance it at, even if they can, or A, you're going to see banks just say, this is too risky. I can't finance this. B, you're going to see companies that just can't afford uh, what their new interest rate and interest payments are. And you're going to see bankruptcies and you're going to see layoffs in the tunes of thousands or tens of thousands of people at, at large, stable companies, right? That's the stuff. We, we aren't even seeing that. but it takes time for these things to get absorbed into the economy. And that's what I mean. Fed doesn't have any tact. So aggressive. Um, so I agree with this guy, Ken. Pump the brakes a little bit, Fed. Inflation is going insane. Uh, and it's largely your fault, yes. But, uh, but man, you don't need to cause a massive recession in the process. Basically, uh, you know, let's just start here. Elon tweeted this. First one is they said I couldn't buy Twitter. We on this show predicted that Elon would buy Twitter. Okay. Then they wouldn't disclose bot info. It's actually fraud. Now they want to force me to buy Twitter in court. And then where he's keeling over of la dying of laughter. Now they have to disclose bot info in court. Okay, so what does all of this mean? Let's unpack this. Will Elon actually end up buying Twitter? No, I actually think, yeah, um, I do. It, it would look crazy. And all of the media publications hate Elon. So they're all saying, oh, this judge is going to force Elon to buy Twitter. But, but here's the thing you got to understand, gang. Twitter executives committed fraud. I'm waiting for the class action lawsuit from investors. I actually have not seen it yet, but I guarantee you there will be a class action lawsuit uh, for fraud. <clears throat> and what do I mean by that? Elon tweeted this out May 17th, 
20% fake slash spam accounts while four times higher what Twitter claims could be much higher. My offer was based on Twitter's SEC filings being accurate. Yesterday, Twitter's CEO publicly refused to show proof of what they've reported in their SEC filings, which is that they have less than 5% um, their MDAU, MDAO, which is monetizable daily active users. They've said in multiple public filings that, that, uh, that their spam bots account for less than 5% of that number. And so now if we jump to the letter from Elon's attorneys, where they basically say, hey, why are we canceling this thing? Although Twitter has not yet provided complete information to Mr. Mr. Musk that would enable him to do a complete and comprehensive review of spam and fake accounts on Twitter's platform, he has been able to partially and preliminarily analyze the accuracy of Twitter's disclosure regarding its MDAO. While this analysis remains ongoing, all indications suggest that several of Twitter's public disclosures regarding its MDAOs are either false or materially misleading. That's called fraud. First, although Twitter has consistently represented in securities filings that, quote, fewer than 5% of its MDAO are false or spam accounts, based on the information provided by Twitter to date, it appears that Twitter is dramatically understating the proportion of spam and false accounts represented in its MDAO count. Preliminary analysis by Mr. Musk's advisors of the information da, 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 provided by Twitter count is wildly higher than 5%. And a huge part of how platform companies are valued is off of what? It's off of growth. And a huge part, because we've covered Twitter on the show for years. I've talked for years about how um, Twitter has flat user growth, how, um, yes, they report like 200 million global uh, monthly active users, but no one cares about those users. It's all about the U.S. users, which are monetizable, hence the M in, in DAO, right? Monetizable daily active users. So how could you monetize or how should you be able to monetize a daily active user who is a spam or fake bot account, right? You shouldn't be able to. You're actually now defrauding your advertisers, so when you look at these numbers in the U.S. from 2017 through the end of 2021, look at the chart. Uh, it goes, you know, it doesn't go up and to the right quickly, but it's generally trending up and to the right. And this is not by accident, right? You, if you go to Q1 2017, it's a 26 million. Uh, you go to Q1 no, no, let's do uh, before COVID. Let's go Q4 2019, right before COVID. 31 million. Hmm, okay. Then COVID comes. It goes up into the mid to high 30s. Now they're in the mid to high 30s. And Q4 2021, they say you got 38 million, right? So if you actually say, well, hmm, if 10 or 20% of your MDAO are fake, this chart looks a lot different, right? A lot different. If 10 to 20% of this uh, 38 million in Q4 of 2021 are fake, well, now this number should be like 30 million. And, you know, all these numbers should be revised. And a huge part of how any tech company, especially a platform company, is valued is off of growth. Growth of what? monetizable users for a content platform, so for a social media platform. So management clearly knows that if they're reporting to investors, which they've done on multiple occasions in written and 
in written uh, you know, filings uh, to the SEC and in their statements you know, to analysts on their earnings calls. So if they're saying, yeah, we have less than 5% spam or fake bot accounts, and we've got a process to, you know, in place to uh, calculate that, and then someone goes in to buy it, and you then realize that, oh, actually, you're possibly, you know, 100 to 200% or possibly 400% greater than what you reported on. Yeah, that's, that's a big problem. Now, I don't think Elon just canceled the deal without going to Twitter and saying, guys, like, you know, this thing's no longer worth $44 billion. Like, this is a very different story of a company. Not to mention, let's be honest, markets have tanked. Valuations have, 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 are completely different from where they are a few months ago, which is when Elon made uh, the initial offer for Twitter. So he's obviously feeling some buyer's remorse that he overpaid, looking for ways that he can retrade the agreement, which he's alluded to um, in the past that you know he's not sure if it's actually worth $44 billion anymore. Do I think he still wants to buy it? Yes. Do I think that he tried to go to the Twitter board or Twitter CEO and say, hey, I don't think this thing is worth $44 billion anymore. How about 30? And they clearly didn't like that. I don't think he just says, yeah, this thing is fake. I'm out of here. See ya. Right. I think they tried to negotiate um, a lower deal. They could not come to terms. And now they're going to court. And then, and then Elon said, okay, I'm out, I'm done. And now Twitter is, is suing Elon and wants the $44 billion. Honestly, I think it's a poor decision. I don't know what Elon was trying to retrade them down to. Pretty confident he was retrading them. Usually frowned upon, but in today's environment, we've talked about this elsewhere on the show, it's happening all over the place. Honestly, probably a better idea. Like who else is really gonna look at buying this company in today's environment? And now with all the, um, negative connotations just that, that now circle the company and, and, and all of this. Not to mention uh, employees are fleeing and, and leaving in droves. Culturally, this thing is in an absolute you know, tailspin. Things are just not going well and they're being distracted by, well, you know, what are we actually doing? What's our future? Da, 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 da. I mean, I don't think Elon's in, it, in any necessarily rush to buy Twitter, right? Like he wasn't doing these for, let's say, a strategic purpose. Like he has an existing business and they had all these synergies modeled out. And no, he's buying it for conceptual and idealistic reasons. And those reasons still stand, although, albeit kind of diluted because he's realized that there's actually a lot less people on this thing than, than he had previously thought. Um, and, uh, and, and I think they're really primarily just looking at the MDAOs in the US, let alone, you know, look at, that, look at the MDAOs globally. I mean, that's a whole other can of worms, right? So I think the deal still might happen, frankly. I owned a bunch of Twitter stock, full disclosure. I've sold a bunch of that Twitter stock and just taken the loss. I bought into some of it earlier on, which I probably in break even, but then I bought even more. And I've definitely lost money on this deal. Fine with that, taking the loss. 
and kind of not leaving it tied up in Twitter. And who do I blame? Do I blame Elon or do I blame Twitter management? I 100% blame Twitter management. 100%. This is not okay. You don't accidentally misreport this much spam and fake activity. You're doing it to prop up your growth story. And by the way, that growth story isn't just active users. That growth, these bots, these uh, fake accounts, they consume ad money, right? So they are rinsing through uh, advertisers' money with fake accounts, right? Like where, where are the um, advertising agencies? You know, there are rating agencies for this purpose, and like Nielsen, I think Comscore is another one. Where's Nielsen saying, hey, we think Twitter is suspicious bot activity? No, crickets. Where are the advertisers, you know, getting pissed at Twitter? Twitter can absolutely figure this out. Twitter is, is biased to not figure this out because it helps Twitter. It helps them to show their uh, uh, daily active users higher than they actually are. Those daily active users, those bot accounts are, are technically watching ads and having engagement on Twitter, um, which then Twitter sells ads against that activity, right? Like they're being counted as an active user. That's the whole challenge. That's the whole issue. So they're being counted as an active, active user. And that's one of the things in the letter that, that uh, Elon's lawyers published is they said, hey, when you identify um, a, a bot account and you suspend them, you are still including suspended accounts in your daily active user reporting. So like literally you are including bot accounts who are suspended into your daily active user numbers, right? Like that's inappropriate. I bet if we could look in their books and see how much money they're spending on content moderation, AKA thought police versus detecting spam and fake bot accounts, AKA rinsing advertisers' money and defrauding investors. Which one do you think they're investing in more? It's absolutely the former. Company is just completely mismanaged and upside down, which does create a big opportunity as a buyer, as Elon, to fix the madness. Uh, but at what price? And 44 billion is clearly too high. So let's talk a little bit about Amazon. We got a few things related to Amazon today. Um, First one is Grubhub, which had merged with this company called Just Eat Takeaway, which is in Europe. Basically, Amazon has struck a deal with this food delivery marketplace, who's clearly a number three to DoorDash, Uber Eats, and then kind of Grubhub slash Just Eat Takeaway, which is in Europe, right? So Amazon did this deal and they said, hey, we will offer Prime users a one-year membership to your service, food delivery service. And depending upon how many volumes we drive to your company, um, we're going to get out of the gate a 2% stake in your business. And that could increase, we could increase our, our holding to 15% of the company. This is all basically in warrants. It's a cashless transaction. Maybe there is some money involved in this elsewhere, but Amazon is trying to make, you know, a push into food delivery. They want to make DoorDash and Uber's life harder. And they're kind of doing this in a way which is going to bring now more value to their prime users. 
And then Amazon can get some additional upside. Maybe there's some rev share and other things in here that's not being disclosed. But then what is being disclosed, which has to be disclosed to shareholders, is that Amazon could also get a bunch of shares in, in the uh, holding company in Just Eat Takeaway. Why do they have to do this deal? Because uh, they're struggling with growth. You can see here a uh, comparison between Uber Eats, DoorDash, and, and Uber Eats also owns Postmates, so those should be combined, and then Grubhub. Uber Eats and Postmates is like 27% of market share. This is in the US as of May of 2022. DoorDash, 59%. Wow. And then Grubhub, 13%. And Grubhub's share is flat slash declining. Now, this is relative share. Now, the overall size of the market might be increasing. So if you look at Grubhub's numbers or if you look at Just Eat Takeaway, which is the holding company, which owns both the European businesses and the U.S. business of Grubhub, you'll still see it growing. But the question is, how fast is it growing relative to the growth of the overall market and the growth of their competitors? And the answer is not very well. Their relative market share is actually decreasing here from 2021 to 2022. Whereas, you know, that of DoorDash is clearly expanding Postmates and Uber Eats, it's kind of tough to tell by this chart, but it doesn't look like it's declining. You know, it might be a little bit the same, maybe increasing a little bit, whereas DoorDash is really clearly capturing the growth on a relative basis. Grubhub, not so much. Uber Eats, maybe a little bit. So Grubhub needed to change the mix. They need to do something a little bit more drastic, right? You'll typically see that from like the number three player, right? They got to do something kind of crazy. Uh, to try and regain some momentum, enter doing a deal with the devil called Amazon. Uh, yikes. So we'll see if this deal works. I hope it doesn't just because I don't like Amazon. We have seen precedent for this, actually. We've seen a very similar kind of deal that Amazon did with Amazon Prime to Twitch. Now, Twitch is owned by Amazon, but it's a very similar deal structure. Twitch didn't need to give warrants to Amazon because it's owned by Amazon, but but um, Amazon offered a deal, like a subscription deal to Amazon Prime users to go and like activate um, subscriptions to follow Twitch content creators like Twitch live streamers. And you saw uh, Twitch and paid engagement and usage and all these metrics go through the roof. It worked phenomenally well uh, to really add and, and, and put more gas on the fire for Twitch. Um, now, Twitch didn't have to do that deal out of desperation like Grubhub is doing. It was just naturally synergistic because Amazon owns Twitch. This is different though, and Amazon's getting a couple pounds of flesh for this transaction in the form of warrants. This also isn't the first time that Amazon has done um, these kinds of uh, volume-based deals in exchange for warrants. We've covered that on past videos on the show, highlighting how Amazon has gotten uh, service providers like people providing logistics uh, or, or um, product suppliers, people that Amazon's buying products from or people that are providing services to Amazon. Amazon has gotten warrants from those providers or you know uh, product manufacturers. If they want to get volumes from Amazon, they need to give them more than just a really good price. One of those companies called Spartan Nash that 
had had a similar impact when news came out that Amazon secured the rights to acquire up to 5.4 million shares of Spartan Nash for $17.73 a share. And Spartan Nash is a big supplier of food uh, to Amazon's, you know, Amazon Fresh and all these kinds of things. And the stock has done well since then. Um, is it because of Amazon? Is it because of Amazon or not? You know, hard to tell. Um, we don't really get that level of visibility, but there's, you know, there's precedent for this working to, to give volumes from Amazon's massive network of demand to these other providers. It's tough. I mean, Amazon just has such a huge, I mean, Walmart, like who else has more consumers? The other thing would be to do some kind of a partnership with Lyft. You know, I actually don't know why DoorDash doesn't try and do something like that. I know Amazon has precedent doing this before. Like Walmart doesn't have as much precedent. They don't have as many active subscribers in their Walmart Plus program. So it makes sense to me why you do this with Amazon and you kind of need, you kind of need more of the sure thing uh, because Grubhub is struggling and, and it's tougher to do something, you know, with a Walmart or a Lyft where there's less confidence there, right? This is a little bit more kind of tried and proven. Amazon has a lot of credentials in doing this, frankly. Doesn't mean you couldn't have done it with another player, but who knows how well those players would execute on it, how interested they are in actually doing this. Um, and what their priorities are. So this is kind of funny. Amazon pins hope on influencers to crack live stream shopping market. This came out a week ago. E-commerce giant has been increasing its investment in Amazon Live as it fights to grab a slice of the growing market. Literally like a day before, TikTok abandons e-commerce expansion in Europe and the US. Live streaming shopping has struggled to gain traction for TikTok. The Chinese-owned company's venture called TikTok Shop allows brands and influencers to broadcast live and sell products through a clickable orange basket on the screen of the app. This has done very well in Asia and China. Uh, live stream shopping is a huge, huge thing over there. But the expansion plans have been dropped um, after they did a trial in the UK, which failed to meet targets and influencers, influencers dropped out of the program. The market just isn't there yet, a TikTok employee said. General consumer awareness and adoption are still low and nascent. Which is interesting because then two days later, another article, also some from the Financial Times, says, yeah, Amazon's making a big push. Amazon has stepped up plans to crack the QVC-style live stream shopping market. The group has been increasing investment in Amazon Live. So in China, sales generated through live streams are projected to surpass $400 billion which is about 15% of all e-commerce sales in China, up from 3.5% just three years ago in China, right? Wow. Definitely a huge boost from COVID. You can see the leap here in uh, 2019, 3.5%, 2020, 7.5%, 2021, 11.3%, and, and projected 15% uh, for 2022. These are China numbers. Wayne Perbo, the executive responsible for Amazon Live, so take this one with a grain of salt, said he believes live stream shopping is the future of retail. Well, you better believe that because that's your job, Wayne. So it actually looks like Facebook Live is the leader of live stream shopping in the U.S. Uh, they did a poll here of 500 U.S. respondents who have watched a shoppable live stream and, you know, where 
what platform did they use to do that? Facebook had 50% of the 500, you know, they could have used multiple platforms, but 50% of the 500 said they used Facebook, 40% said they'd used YouTube and Amazon, a little over 30% Instagram, TikTok, sub 30%. And then actually at the bottom is like 25% QVC. So QVC missing the ball on this is, is a perfect example of, of uh, you know, the incumbent trying to do it all themselves as opposed to, you know, partnering um, with other tech startups that are out there. QVC is owned by the holding companies called Qrate. They've been trying to make changes. Uh, I've got a relatively new CEO from August 2021. He just did an executive reshuffling in uh, Q1 of 2022. So they're trying to make changes here. See, the challenge is these other, the other online live streaming competitors, it's a platform business model, are doing more than just live stream shopping, right? I mean, go back and look at this list. It's Facebook, YouTube, Amazon, Instagram, and TikTok. You've been going to those websites for things other than let me watch a live stream video to buy stuff, right? QVC was the same thing, right? QVC was a TV channel, still is, amongst a bunch of other channels on TV. You go to, you watch TV and you watch a whole bunch of other channels on TV, right? Now QVC is trying to say, hey, we want to be that online destination for live stream shopping. But to me, what they're missing is other complementary reasons and stickiness to draw users in, right? That would allow them to have like these, these different network effects that overlap with each other, right? Where you you know, there are other business models and other products or services or offerings, or content platform reasons. Could QVC engage in partnerships with other tech startups, other types of platform businesses, and um, start to build kind of this broader network of uh, collaboration versus it all having to be at QVC? And if it is all having to be at QVC.com, um, then you have to start buying other complementary businesses that broaden the value prop, right? Because that's actually what made QVC successful on TV. It wasn't just that I'm going to go, right? It was one of the things you could do on TV and you watch some QVC, you go watch some other stuff, right? You have your power users on QVC buying stuff on TV and that's all they do. But then you look at the, you know, the middle of the tail and the long tail and you got some people that are watching it, but then watching a movie or going flicking the commercial and this and that, right? Even with TikTok and all the ammunition and existing demand that TikTok has going for this, they're, they're still shuttering TikTok live. You need to have a more holistic offering if you've got any chance of competing with these tech monopolies. Gracio, one of the leading Amazon aggregator, which then spawned literally a slew of Amazon aggregators across the whole spectrum. Basically, these are companies that are buying sellers and, and brands that are going presumably mostly direct to Amazon brands um, and then rolling them up and uh, incrementally improving and optimizing their operations to grow and, and be successful selling online through marketplaces, right? So check this out. This company, Thrasio, had so much money. In early January, January 2022, around 40 e-commerce entrepreneurs from around the world gathered in deluxe villas in Cabo, Mexico. They flew in on the invitation of Thrasio, the biggest aggregator of businesses that sell on Amazon's marketplace. Thrasio hosted workshops on topics like mastering Amazon search results, 
and getting the most out of advertising. Everyone got a gift of Casa Azul Reposado, not bad. Gracio footed the bill for all the accommodations, activities, food, and booze. Just four months after the lavish three-day getaway, Thrasio laid off staff and brought in a new CEO, uh, former Airbnb and Amazon executive Greg Geely. That abrupt retrenchment has jolted the tight-knit aggregator startup industry, which feasted on $15 billion in debt and equity funding during the pandemic. Thrasio alone raised more than $3 billion, which is actually a lot of uh, equity. You know, you'd, you'd think it would actually be more debt than equity that they would have raised, but they raised a billion dollars in equity in October 2021 on a $5.5 billion post-money valuation, $650 million in debt right before that, September 2021, $100 million in equity April 2021, $250 million in equity February 2021, right? So February 2021, they raised a $2.3 billion valuation and then $3.7 billion in April 2021. They raised $500 million in debt in February 2021, $480 million in debt in December 2020. Basically, COVID was a godsend for these kinds of Amazon aggregator companies, right? You know, April 2020 on, that's really when Thrasio raged, raised the you know, large over $3 billion between debt and equity. So, you know, is this company underwater or not? Well, actually, just today, it came out with a press release that said Thrasio has its most successful Amazon Prime day ever. They had 100% sales increase year over year. What you got to remember is they bought a lot of companies in the past year. So then they go on to say, well, on a like for like basis, including the prior year sales of newly acquired brands, Overall sales increased by 60%, right? So if they, because they didn't own all the businesses that they had a year ago that they have today, right? So if you really look at all of it, it's an increase of 60%, which is the more accurate number. 100% is not accurate, not comparing apples to apples. So literally, this company had like two co CEOs uh, in the fall of last year. Both of those CEOs are gone. Um, they've laid off a bunch of people. They have, I think, done a whole restructuring of their M&A strategy. They have a new CEO, this guy, Greg Geely. And, you know, it, in general, the thesis makes sense. Um, but again, we just came off of a massively over leveraged, insane valuation peak season the past two years. I bet they bought a lot of companies at multiples that they wish they had not paid. And their valuation, their own valuation, also seemingly way too high. And that means that you got to do, you got to change a lot of things. Hopefully they've got the cash that can kind of get them through this. And they're not doing any more of these, uh, you know, Cabo excursions. But, you know, this trend of, Am trend of Amazon aggregators, you know, it makes sense. But to, to what degree, right? To what multiples should you really be commanding? And I think that's what you're seeing really change is, what are you able to really improve when you aggregate these brands? Thrasio isn't raising all this money, at least from my understanding, to go and like build out its own fulfillment centers. That would be kind of interesting, right? How could you move away from having to pay Amazon fulfillment fees? Now, maybe they can get enough bargaining power that they could get better deals and discounts in the fees that they pay for Amazon, but they don't have enough scale or money to be presumably building out their own fulfillment uh, capabilities. Seems like they're optimizing the operations of the business 
funny because we just did a video about Amazon live streaming. They've got a screenshot of marketing through Amazon live shoppable videos on Amazon Prime Day. I didn't even know it was Amazon Prime Day. Did you know it was Amazon Prime Day? I didn't. How much of a premium, like should you really be getting a tech multiple on that business? Uh, no, right? Like there's, it's not tech. You're selling on other tech marketplaces like Amazon, who you're beholden to. You can incrementally improve ads and marketing, maybe have some more bargaining power to pay less fees to the platform monopoly, maybe. But your, your manufacturing is all spread out and disparate, right? These are all completely different brands. And, you know, outside of that, I don't, nothing really is jumping out at me as to what the synergies are. You know, what's interesting, the one thing this, this reminded me of, some of the theory around Sonder and kind of like a, a roll-up of places on Airbnb, you know, a bunch of different apartments they put on Airbnb. Yeah, Sonder did a SPAC, went public in the beginning of this year. You know, so your SPACs, they, li they list at $10 a share. Now Sonder is at a dollar. You could buy this. I mean, the market cap is $200 million, right? Yikes. It was an interesting thesis. Hey, if, if we create a brand on Airbnb, Airbnb being the dominant marketplace for, you know, kind of peer-to-peer uh, -peer homes and, and, and apartments. And if we create a brand on Airbnb and become, you know, the most well-recognized brand on Airbnb, that could be very powerful. And I thought, oh, you know, I guess that makes sense. So when I saw these Amazon aggregators, it kind of reminded me of this idea on Airbnb. But there's a lot of differences between the Amazon, Amazon marketplace and the Airbnb marketplace. Not as strong and monopolistic marketplace in Airbnb vis-a-vis -vis Amazon. Um, Amazon has way more leverage on its third-party sellers. Airbnb has been seeding more and more and, and having more professional uh, suppliers over the years than, um, than kind of, you know, do-it-yourself individuals. Neither of them are platform businesses. Just saying, could you be a leading producer? Could you be a leading seller on the marketplace? And, um, you know, there's a lot less competition for that on Sonder than there is... Um, on Amazon. So I don't know. I don't really like either of them, unfortunately, but um, it's just very difficult to say, hey, I want to be the biggest and baddest producer on a marketplace that's so dominant, even if it's just Airbnb. It was really the platform monopoly of kind of, you know, do it yourself, peer to peer uh, homeless things. So like zero to one, right? Just ask Peter Thiel, what do you want to do if you want to start a business? You want to be the monopoly. You don't want to be the you know, the biggest producer on the monopoly. I don't know. It doesn't, not the best place to be. That's it for us today in Winner Take All. Thank you so much for joining us. I will talk to you soon.